I can and cannot imagine the weight of the profit. On one hand, I can understand. I see it today. As I have said multiple times throughout the series, part of the inspiration of the series has been a critique of the American church and the parallels I've seen between Israel during the time of Hosea and where we find ourselves now as a church. There seems to be a weight on the American church that as we see more and more of our pews becoming more and more empty, there seems to be a way as we uh, see more and more people identifying uh, or choosing not to identify as Christians, there seems to be a way as in the church itself are used within itself over social issues and moral failings of leadership. This tension, this weight, it is for the prophet to see and call out, to help as John the Baptist yells out from the desert to make the way clear, to make a path. And also John the Baptist yelling out that the axe is at the root of the tree. But on the other hand, the reason why I can't imagine the way to the prophet is that I do not know how much more I can, time I can spend speaking of such negativity. Part of the problem when looking for all the bad things is that you can always seem to find the bad things. You can always find darkness just as you can always find light. But staring into the, but constantly staring into the darkness and constantly calling out the evils of this world, I don't know how you don't let it begin to consume you or even speak to you. And perhaps this is why the prophet Elijah, when famously getting, uh, letting the weight and darkness become too much, God calls to him to eat some food and take a nap. Because when trying to shoulder the weight of God's judgment, it can be exhausting. And ultimately, as people who get to know the full stories... That weight is not meant for our shoulders. The Old Testament prophets unfortunately had to shoulder the judgment that eventually is superseded by Christ. And what Christ ultimately reminds us, it is Christ alone who will shoulder the judgment. And our job as people knowing the full story is to be who God calls us to be. And I saw that, uh, I say that to you to let you know that the judgment of Hosea gives is almost over. But it's not done yet. God still has harsh words for Ephraim, for Judah, for Jacob, for Israel, of which still speaks to the church, to you, and to me. Hosea 9 starts with God basically telling Israel not to celebrate how successful you are. Do not celebrate how hashtag blessed that you have become, because God's judgment still burns against them. I think that it is important to note here because it is often said that if you're going if you're doing well in life that must mean that God is delighted with you. And on the flip side if you're not doing so well that means that God is angry or against you. And this bit of scripture direct from the prophet's mouth tells us otherwise that God recognizes Israel's wealth and reminds them that they should not exalt themselves for doing so well because they have done it well by whoring after these other gods. Hosea reminds them that they are love and that but the way that they have loved these other gods, the way they make you feel that the love that they in the bounty that they have received from these other gods, though as Runes again remembering that from previous sermons from Hosea, that God reminds them that even though all these blessings that they get from the actual God, Israel is giving credit to those other Baals or those other gods instead. So if you remember even as far back as the scripture from Hosea 6, the items that God brings up are wheat and wine as things that Israel has wrongly attributed to these other things or these other gods that have been given to them by these Baals and not by God. But in reality, it was God who gave it to them. 
And I say that because we kind of come back full circle here when God uh, says here in Hosea 9 that the threshing floor and the winepress know them not, and new wine shall be denied to them in verse 2. God is saying, you know what? Even these things that these other gods have given you, this this wine and the wheat that I have actually given to you, but you are attributing to these other gods, I'm now going to start taking even that away. So the blessings that I have given to you and you start attributing to these other gods, I'm going to take those away from you. The Lord is saying that I'll actually even force you back to Egypt. I will force you to eat the unclean meat of your oppressors, the Assyrians. And so when Israel was being taken over by the Assyrians, the Assyrians would make them adopt their culture, the Assyrian culture, which meant eating meat that was typically unclean to the Jews. And so once again, God's saying, you know what? I will force you back to Egypt. I will make you eat unclean meat because you are being oppressed by the Assyrians. The Lord is telling them that if you want these other gods, then fine. I'll give you over to them. You win. But I tell you this, you're not going to like what this means. It means that I will no longer be able to see your sacrifices. It means that you will pour out wine as an offering, but I won't accept it. It means that the bread you eat will actually make you unclean. It means the sacrifices you bring are more for you than they are for me. And this is why the Lord references that these you're full on sacrifices it's when the—I've talked about this before. In temple culture, when you would offer a sacrifice, part of the meat that you would offer to sacrifice would be eaten. Um, and so these people are bringing fatter sacrifices, not as to burn that fat for God as sacrifice, but rather to have more to eat for themselves. So he says, you would rather fill your gut than bring me an offering, even in the act of actually giving me offering. You would rather it be for you than it is for me. He says you will be lost. And even if you escape those entrapments, your foes will enslave you. Egypt and Memphis will get to you. I think it's also important to know that this is not Memphis, Tennessee, but rather Memphis, a land in Egypt. I actually had to look that up because I was thrown by the word Memphis. And actually, I'm gonna. this is completely unrelated to this. But there is, uh, uh, what when I read through this, there was a deleted scene in Talladega Nights that came to my mind. It's a deleted scene at the very end of the credits where uh, Will Ferrell's character says that Jesus was born in Tennessee and then walked the land bridge over to Jerusalem. And uh, that's where I get Memphis and Jesus associated in my head is because of after credit deleted scenes from Talladega Nights. So thank you for that. Uh, back to the actual sermon. And uh, what Hosea tells them is that when they enslave you, it's going to be very uncomfortable. It'll be like snares in your jewelry or thorns in your tent. So basically, the things that you wear, it's like having like little barbs in them. This is the way I always create it, too, is that when you get your hair cut and you have those little hairs like sticking in your shirt, that are kind of annoying to you and you can't see them. That's what he's saying. It's like there's going to be snares in your jewelry or thorns in your tent. It's just going to make you very uncomfortable and miserable because the little things that are supposed to bring you comfort, like your bed you sleep in and the clothes that you wear, they won't give you comfort. And then that, on top of all of everything else going around you, you are going to be upset. And it's hard not to read this and think of the American church that we have today. To think of the way that we have enmeshed ourselves into politics or the things of this world. And it feels like God is saying, well, if that's what you really want, then the eyes of the Lord will 
give you into that. Because of that, you're going to find yourselves very uncomfortable. You're not going to find rest anymore. You will find your sacrifices being burned without intention. You will pour out your wine as an offering to the Lord, but the Lord's just not going to accept it. And it's strange. Actually, at this point in the sermon, I want to talk about one of the largest figures in the early evangelical church, Billy Graham, and his journey through politics. But then it led me down this like road of research that really opened my eyes to who Billy Graham was. See, Billy Graham famously led uh, crusades throughout the world, leading literally millions to follow Christ. It's believed that he led about 3.2 million people to knowing Christ. Graham was also involved in politics, serving as a spiritual consultant to every president. That's every single president, from Truman to Obama. Every single president he consulted with, from Truman to Obama. Uh, But very famously, he was very close to Nixon administration, but never really came out to publicly support one side or the other. And also, I when I was going through this research, he also said some pretty problematic things about Jewish culture uh, that really kind of believed or showed that Billy Graham was had an anti-Semitic view. Um, I say that just because I'm being honest with the research that I'm doing, and I don't want to hide that. But he also very famously gave a lot of interviews in his older age saying that he was wrong and he apologized for all those views that he had. So I want to also put that out there too, that as you research your own on Billy Graham, you're going to find some problematic things, but don't let that be the end of the story because he also comes back and asks for forgiveness for the things that he said and recognizing that it was wrong. Okay, so we have Billy Graham on one hand, but I want to put another person in front of us or on the other hand, so to speak. During this time, you also have a man called Jerry Falwell Sr. He becomes senior when he has Jerry Falwell Jr., who starts a political religious group known as the Moral Majority, which is where they begins to align themselves with the Republican Party or the political right. They need... They have a belief, and this started as a sermon series that Jerry Falwell Sr. did and then eventually led him to going around America to talking about this issue, which then led him to creating this political party or this political institution, I should say, not the party, but a political institution called the Moral Majority. They believe that they needed to use America uh, to use politi- politics, excuse me. They needed to use politics to stop America's moral decay. And this was actually really kind of addressing issues uh, with homosexuals alongside issues of perversion and other things. But the main issue was homosexuals and some of the things that were coming to light. They wanted to stop that moral decay. And so they said, we are going to start this moral majority. And I think that what you begin to see here is a tension between two titans of the American church of the time. One who says, you know what, I'm going to be involved in politics in the sense that I'm a person, but I'm not going to be outspoken about it. I'm going to be off in the side. But one who all the other side of that, who decides to use it as the medium for the message for evangelism. So they're going to use politics as the medium to accomplish evangelistic goals. Well, the other one said evangelism is evangelism. And I think these, these two poles begin to pull at the American church going forward where it becomes down the aisle, we seem split. Some want to stay out of politics or lean more towards the middle. Billy Graham is very famous for having a quote 
uh, during this time, he was asked why he did not join the Moral Majority or Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, Jerry Falwell Sr.'s organization. He said it would be unfortunate. Uh, this is Billy Graham. It would be unfortunate if people got the impression that all evangelists belong to that group. The majority do not. I do not wish to be identified with them. I'm for morality, but morality goes beyond sex to human freedom and social justice. We as clergy know so very little to speak out with such authority on the Pan uh, Panama Canal or superiority of armaments. armaments. Evangelists can't be closely identified with any particular party or person. We have to stand in the middle to preach to all people, right and left. I haven't been faithful to the, my own advice in the past, but I will be in the future. And even in 2002, one of the interviews of Billy Graham, when he was asked one of his biggest regrets in his life, he actually answered being involved with politics at all. Whereas Jerry followed Sr. on the other side, seeing donations beginning to diminish to the moral majority in the 80s, declared our goal has actually been achieved, that the religious right is solidly in place, and that religious conservatives in America are now in it for the duration. And I think that, once again, this is that split that you see how church can be, how is church best displayed in interacting with politics? And you have these two different poles that these two different evangelical leaders begin to represent and see how God may or may not have given us over to our own desires. As we desire to be more involved in politics, God says, okay, I will let you be involved in politics. Go ahead, return back to Egypt. Go ahead, return back to enslavement to a certain political ideal or party. Go back and return to those things. And I also want to say that this specifically, this talking about these two different poles in evangelism, this is a very Caucasian or white Western view. The minority church, especially, especially the black African American church, did not get the luxury of making a choice of how much they were involved in politics because their very bodies becomes a political act. I want to say that again because I think that's always really, really important to put these disclaimers in our sermons that when I'm this view that I'm giving about this tension in between Billy Graham and Jerry Fowler Sr. and how to be involved in politics as the church, this is very white, very white, because the black church following their leaders, didn't even get the opportunity to have the conversation because their bodies were used and became political acts in themselves. Okay, I want to get back to Hosea because this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I think it's an important rabbit hole because the American church has been pulled in so many different directions for such a long time when it, should be, when it comes to being involved in politics. Should it be involved in politics? Should it not be involved in politics? I actually have no answer because I've seen the American church use the gospel as a sword to both defend those on the marginal uh, on the margins and attack those on the margins. But it's a conversation that we need to keep on going and not actually turn our eyes to or bury our heads in the sand and pretend doesn't exist. We need to have this conversation because other generations are going to judge us just like we judged the previous generation on whether they had this conversation or not. And God is giving us over to our desires in this. So we need to be able to actually check ourselves before we wreck ourselves to know what our desires are. Okay, back to Hosea. Now, we get into a little job, uh, a little bit of Job uh, protection. Uh, I'm sorry, 
we're going to get back to, I, I read Job in my sermon, and I didn't, my sermon notes, and I don't remember if I remember Job or Job at that moment. I meant Job. See, Hosea goes into a little bit of job protection and says that Israel has declared their prophets madmen, that Hosea totally saw this coming, that the split that was about to happen inside of the uh, Israel and saying like all this political uh, schmoozing that you're doing, it's going to lead to your destruction. Hosea's like, hey guys, I'm totally calling this. Why are you doing this? I'm totally predicting it. And Israel did not listen. And actually, very famously, Billy Graham said, I don't want to see religious bigotry in any form. It would disturb me if there was ever a wedding between the religious fundamentalist and the political right. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. I'm just going to kind of leave that quote out there to float in the, the space. But I really, I need to stop talking about Christianity and politics, especially in the American church. Okay, so Hosea continues to tell Israel that they were once, uh, they were like these wild grapes that were found in the desert. So like, imagine that you're walking through the desert and you find wild grapes, the sweetness of them, the wateriness of them. Like that's a pretty great find. And, and God's saying like, hey, you're like these wild grapes that I found in the desert. And then you just go on to disappoint me. See, they were these totally unexpected, and yet they totally did the expected thing and disappoint God. And now, God's going to say, I'm just going to basically make you childless. And the important thing to note here is that we've been circling throughout this in the Hosea series, is God is connected to issues of fertility. We've talked about this. Remember in the early chapters, we talked about how Baal, the worship of Baal, was connected to this act of fertility. Baal was a fertility god and he brought rain which would signify new life because as crops would come up from the ground and be able to support new life there's this idea of like okay well if new life comes out of rain and by Baal's hand then we have new life fertility coming from Baal's hand and so when God starts to talk about fertility and drying up their fertility he's actually calling out their worship of Baal as well saying you think this guy this other god has fertility but that's actually me, once again. And so, in order to show you that, I'm going to make you unfertile. I'm going to dry up your wombs. Like, he actually goes as far as to saying, like, I'm going to close the womb and dry up the breast so that even if your women have children, they cannot feed them. This is some heavy metal stuff. Like, God is, like, not holding back his punches. But really what he's trying to say is, you think these other gods are going to take care of you. I'm here to tell you that they will not. Because fertility was so important to the, the lineage of a nation, right? Like, if you aren't having kids, how is your nation going to continue to exist? And so God, once again, is saying, like, if I make you childish, I will end your lineage. Your people will no longer exist. I'm going to make your you unfertile. And God is, once again, showing the depth of Ephraim and how far past gone it's gotten. God is saying that he is so exhausted by your whoring around to these other gods and these other politicians and cities and powers that he's decided it would be better for them to die out rather than them trying to bring them back and this makes god sad it really does it breaks god's heart because god says that he placed them in the most perfect place to grow he's like i chose the promised land for you the land of milk and honey i planted you there and yet You've chosen these other things. 
God planted them in the most fertile ground, but yet they spilled blood upon it. God gave them the rains, but they turned and thanked these other gods. God gave them the sun, but they stood in the shade of other nations. God gave them a great harvest, but they consumed it all quickly, leaving nothing in reserve for the stranger, for the widow, for the child. And now God says, I'm going to scorch them with their own sun. I'm going to make them leave their blood-soaked grounds. I'm going to make them leave their other gods. And Isaiah continues into the last refrain that we're getting to of God's diss track, where it begins to change in how God is going to speak to Israel. So chapter 10, Isaiah is describing them at the beginning of chapter 10, similar to he did to the end of chapter 8. Israel has gotten rich and has made many altars to God, but these altars were kind of made for the wrong reasons. They were made in vain. They were altars that were constructed for themselves to show how wealthy they are instead of actually celebrating the blessings of God. This is kind of very easy to do. and We can see this in humanity where we take something that God has given us and in order to show how good we are, how great God is, we build this really magnificent thing. But it's actually more about us and looking how good we are or how beautiful we are than it is about God. They became rich and they thought it was because of their own righteousness that made them rich. They began to make these altars of God, which were strangely built in their own image. When we think God has blessed us, it's, it's strange to see how quickly God begins to look like us. When we think God looks like us, we build things that strangely only begin to help us. I want to say that again, because I think that's really important for us. And I think this is something that's central to a struggle inside the American church. When we think that God has blessed us, it's strange to see how quickly God begins to look like us. And when we think God looks like us, when we build things, it's strange to see how they only help us. And this is where Hosea begins to lament for Israel because of their false heart, confusing their economic empower their economic empower as a blessing for god which god is going to destroy they thought that their power was the power of god and god said no you have dealt falsely now and i'm coming to smash your altars i think it's another important thing to note that it, we need to remind ourselves that originally god did not want to put a king over israel because well people in power tend to be corrupted so god recognized this in humanity you know, because he created us. And he said, I don't really want to put somebody in charge. But Israel, being Israel, is like, we really need somebody in charge because that's how we know how to live. And so he establishes this divinic line, uh, this line of kings. And you find that kind of beginning in Second Samuel. Israel gets his king. And like ever since that moment, there's some good parts. Like Israel's kings do good things, but they mostly do bad things. And Israel begins to falter as they put more and more in trust in their kings and not so much in the trust of God or the prophets that God sends, which begins to lead them astray, their trust of man over what God is doing. And it, lead, it leads them into their most recent situation where Israel split between two kings. And now of Israel in the middle of Hosea 10 saying, we have no king, so why would we need God? And I can only imagine God's frustration at this point where he says, these are empty words. You asked for a king, so I gave you a king. And now you're telling me you don't need a king because you have God. Israel's a toddler, only wanting what they don't have and lying to you along the way. I know this because I have personal experience dealing with a toddler that likes to act this way. 
But this last half of Hosea 10 is where I want to focus, and in true Midwestern fashion, it's a focused on farming and how things are meant to grow. Finally, Hosea has something nice to say about Ephraim, Judah, and Jacob at the, uh, in the middle of chapter 10, and that's to do with Israel's history. God speaks to Ephraim saying that it was a trained cow, once again, God calling Israel a cow, that loved to do work, but God spared their neck. It says Ephraim's neck was fair, which meant that it wasn't overworked or overburdened because typically a yoke was placed upon the neck of a cow. And so if a cow was overworked, its neck would no longer be fair because of all the burden that it had gone through, which meant that God never intended Israel to be burdened or enslaved for forever. He said, I'm going to keep your neck fair as in the sense that I will no longer keep you enslaved. God says you weren't meant for enslavement, but rather the hard work in front of you, the things that you're going to go through, it's meant to plow the ground. It's meant to till the ground. It's meant to break them up so that the good things can get through. That's why you till ground, so that when you plant seeds, the ground is already loose enough that they can push up through the ground. I'm sure you all knew that being Midwesterners, but wanted to make sure you knew. Uh, we have chatted through this concept a couple of times throughout the study that is kind of problematic, uh, that... But in reality, it is a common concept of the Old Testament, that God sends Israel through difficult times in order to bring a bigger purpose about that can let good things bring through, break through. This is a concept that we as Christians are going to struggle throughout our whole lifetime. I, as a pastor, struggle throughout my whole lifetime, that God will sometimes put difficult situations in front of us for a bigger purpose to let good things break through. And this is actually where we get to some of the first kind words that God offers Israel. It starts in verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap faithful love. Break up your unplanted ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. So remember last week when we chatted about how the Lord says that our motives, our thoughts, and our intentions, and our hard actions affect how we live our lives? God is restating that here, saying if you sow yourselves with righteousness, if you live with righteous motives, have righteous thoughts, have righteous intentions, and righteous heart actions, you will reap faithful love. The Lord says, break up your lives. Remember how we talked about that plowing? Break up your lives. Change your perspectives. Till up that blood-soaked ground and change how you live your lives because now it is time to seek the Lord. It is time for God's righteousness to reign upon you. Hosea reminds Israel that this intention of our lives, this orientation of intention for our lives, this intention of the garden, this intention of the commandments handed down from the mountain, this intention handed to the leaders of Israel, this intention taught to us by Christ, this intention handed down from generation to generation. This is the intended intention for us now in the American church. Sow righteousness so that we may reap faithful love. Say that again because this is, this is the seed planted into the hearts. This is the seed that needs to get plowed again. Sow righteousness so that we may reap faithful love. And what does God do at the end of chapter 10? He ends it with a reminder to where Israel is and what God has seen. He reminds them that God has seen what they have been doing. And out of that, their actions are going to have consequences. God has watched them and God will still deliver them. This is the end of chapter 10. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped depravity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way and in your many warriors. 
Therefore, the noise of war will rise against your people. All of your fortresses will be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arabal on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to pieces for their children. It will indeed happen to you, Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At the dawn, the king of Israel will be cut completely off. This ends Hosea's distract towards Ephraim. God still has more harshness for Israel, but at this point through the prophet Hosea, God's going to start offering forgiveness to Israel. God is going to remind Israel that though their actions have led to consequences, forgiveness will still be offered. Now, no matter how far you've been gone, no matter how much wickedness has been sown, forgiveness will still be offered. See, there is a time to repent to rip up the plants of injustice and unrighteousness that we have planted in our fields and to sow righteousness so that we may reap love. For those who have ears in the church, let them hear. There is still time to repent. There is still time for us to rip up the plants of injustice, to plow over the fields of unrighteousness, and to reseed and plant righteous righteous lives so that we may reap love, not just for us, but in a great harvest that is meant to offer it for those around us. A harvest of love so big, it can invite all to the table. Those who have ears in the American church, let them hear. Sow righteousness so that we may reap love. Be blessed this week, and please, please remember to wash your hands.